Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have a two-part bonus episode for you today. In part one, Dr. Henry Lim explains what's new in the Joint American Academy of Dermatology National Psoriasis Foundation Guidelines of Care for the Management and Treatment of Psoriasis with Phototherapy. In part two, immediately following, you will hear from Dr. Christina Callis-Duffin on approaches to determining which patients are candidates for phototherapy, what factors are at play to achieve patient satisfaction with phototherapy treatment, and more. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues of Dermatology. I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania in dermatology. And today my esteemed guest is Dr. Henry Lim. You may know him as the former chair of the Department of Dermatology at Henry Ford Health, where he is now the senior vice president for academic affairs. He's also a former president of the American Academy of Dermatology, and he also currently serves on the board of the International League of Dermatological Societies. Dr. Lim, it's such a pleasure. Jules, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in the session today. It's definitely a pleasure and a privilege. You're most welcome. So our topic today is the American Academy of Dermatology National Psoriasis Foundation Guidelines for the Treatment of Psoriasis with Ultraviolet Therapies. So can you tell me a little bit about what these guidelines are and how they came to be revised for, I believe, 2019. Correct. Yeah, it was a very, very rigorous process that have taken probably about two years or so for us to revise this particular guideline, mainly because we want to make sure that we are as up-to-date as possible. And also we have input from all the experts on, in this particular case, phototherapy for psoriasis, so that we can have a very practical guideline for our colleagues practicing dermatologists. So the guideline is specifically focused on practical aspects of phototherapy to be used in the clinics. Great. So you assembled quite a team. I saw a number of esteemed researchers listed on the publications. What are the biggest changes from the previous guidelines? Well, I think there are several. One is that we highlighted the consensus of the newer protocol in terms of treatment with narrowband UVB because we all know that narrowband UVB currently is the most widely used form of phototherapy. So we wanted to make sure that the protocol for using narrowband UVB is updated uh, so we have more aggressive protocol in treating patients with narrowband UVB and it is in the table within the article. And so that is number one. Number two is that we also cover broadband UVB, which is not quite commonly used, but I think for historical context, people should know about it. We cover also PUVA on that, but the major change is on the use of narrowband UVB in terms of the protocol, in terms of initial dose, as well as the maintenance dose, as well as the maximal dose of narrowband UVB. We cover also targeted phototherapy that is commonly used now in many centers. That is another modality that obviously it is very practical for us to do for patients with localized lesion for psoriasis. Obviously in some centers they use it also for vitiligo. The other part that we cover is home phototherapy. Home phototherapy is especially with the era of COVID this guideline came out before COVID, so we did not know about that. But nonetheless, you know, in the era of COVID, a lot of time, you know, we have switched to home phototherapy. So it does uh, cover home phototherapy also. 
So that was very well-timed. I've certainly used much more home phototherapy than I ever have before. And I, I imagine still that narrowband UVB, as you mentioned, is the predominant phototherapy that's used by dermatologists these days. But do you see all, that much PUVA, photodynamic therapy, or even some of these others, Glens Ray, chromatotherapy, visible light therapy? What is the range that people are, are using? I think by far, narrowband UVB is still the most widely used one. We cover all the others for the sake of completeness. Glens Ray, for example, there's more the older form of therapy, chromatotherapy. People go to the Black Sea uh, uh, to, to get the, the treatments, but again, the, the data, as we've mentioned there, is not very, very strong in terms of scientific data. So the focus is still, the most important part is still on the narrowband UVB. Want to mention a little bit of PUVA? You know, we did cover that, and then it is uh, some centers still use it, but it is not, as you well know, not as commonly used for multiple reasons. You know, Sorlin is sometimes not easily available. It is quite expensive, and of course, we, all of us are concerned about the long-term side effects of uh, photocarcinogenicity with PUVA photochemotherapy. We cover it because still there is a role for PUVA, especially in, for thicker lesions, in darker skin lesions, uh, darker skin patients because UVA penetrates deeper, so there is an advantage to that. But by far, narrowband is the most widely used one. So specifically on that point, since we're trying to be more conscious of disparities and elevating attention to skin of color for sure, do you think that PUVA should be given greater consideration or be less concerning to use in darker skin types? It is an interesting point. We didn't specifically cover that, but yes, it is something that can be considered more for very dark skin type, for patients with very thick lesions because it penetrates deeper. So on that part, yes. Clearly, you know, the other part that all the studies on photocarcinogenesis on PUVA was done with fair skin individuals. Definitely, we all know that darker skin individuals, the risk of developing skin cancer is significantly lower. So presumably, again, I don't have data, but based on all our clinical experience, is that the data that Rob Stern had generated on PUVA photocarcinogenicity that was generated quite a few years ago, uh, probably does not completely apply to darker skin individuals. There's a, a nice study that uh, you know, one of these days should be done probably. Yeah, I, I had a patient, a dark-skinned patient mm -hmm. with uh, mycosis fungoides who was not responding sufficiently to narrowband. Right. And I chose to put them on PUVA when they did much better on. Yeah. And I thought, well, why was I so hesitant? I mean, it was reasonable to try narrowband first, but given that the risk for photocarcinogenesis seemed low to start yeah. with, it was still very low risk. Yeah. Clearly, we didn't cover uh, mycosis fungoides in this particular article, but when we talk about mycosis fungoides, I think definitely our sort of tolerance for PUVA is significantly lower in the sense that I think PUVA is indeed a very good therapy for plaque stage MF especially, definitely in darker skin individual. I think there's a, definitely a role, uh, even more role than, than more important role than psoriasis. Well, thanks for focusing me back on psoriasis. <laughs> it's just hard not to think of all the no, many absolutely. uses of, <laughs> yes. of uh, phototherapy. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions or missteps that dermatologists may be making using phototherapy for psoriasis? I think there's, there for one, a very frequently asked question whenever I give talk on phototherapy is that what about if a patient is being started on doxycycline for the acne? What about the patient is being started on diuretics for their high blood pressure? Would I need to adjust the dose of narrow UVB? The answer is no. 
because all this medication, the action spectrum is in the UVA range. If you look at the uh, emission spectrum of narrow band light, it is very, very narrow between 311 to 314. Very little UVB is being emitted by narrow band. It's very different if you use broadband UVB. Many of us has been around for some time when narrow, well, broadband UVB was still widely used. That has enough narrow UVA in there, so we have to be a little bit more careful. But realistically, with narrow band, we, you don't have to be concerned about that. The other part is that for women of childbearing age, and we mentioned this, uh, folic acid supplement is, is very important because uh, there are some data, not very strong one, but there are some data that it may affect the development and the neural tube development of the fetus. It's simple enough to take, you know, most of the vitamins would contain that. So beyond just like reactions to medications and such that people Correct. are on, what other adverse events and risks do you think dermatologists should be most concerned about? I think one has to follow the protocol fairly rigorously, and one has to have a person who delivers phototherapy that is quite aware of the potential side effects. The side effects, clearly, the most common one is uh, excessive dose resulting in UV-induced erythema. I think that is, that's why the operator, be it the MA, be it the technician, be it the nurse who is delivering phototherapy in your office, would have to be familiar with that and would have to be familiar with how to adjust the treatment dose. And we, we have some guideline in that in how the treatment dose should be adjusted depending on how much erythema the patient has developed. And that is the important part. You you don't want to undertreat, but you definitely do not want to overtreat these individuals. So I think there's a balance that has to be used. The other part that I want to emphasize is that the beauty of narrowband UVB is that it can be combined with many other systemic or even biologic therapy that we all use for psoriasis. So it is, it is that definitely, you know, if need be, combination therapy can be used. Great. So I, as you're describing these things, I was thinking about for our members who are mm -hmm. listening, sure. what information in general they're finding in the new guidance. I imagine that it's more about background, exact dosing and monitoring recommendations, efficacy, safety, adverse events. Am I describing this accurately? Uh, that is correct. And clearly, as you had mentioned in the beginning, also we did cover other forms uh, on there just to, for completeness sakes, but also for those members who may be interested in knowing about this and, and so on. But what you had just mentioned is absolutely correct. If I may go back a little bit to the combination therapy, the only cautions I would do is that uh, if one combine this with the acetretin, with one of the retinoids, as we know, acetretin would thin out the skin, so it does increase the potential erythema with narrowband UVB. So our general recommendation is that if your patient already is on narrowband UVB, and then you add acetretin for whatever reasons for this patient because of the hyperkeratosis, because of whatever, you do have to adjust the dose, lower the dose, usually by one-third, and then gradually go up again. So I want to take a step back and mm -hmm. put us in like a clinical situation. Sure. Let's say I'm a dermatologist taking care of a psoriasis patient, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking I want to start my patient on phototherapy. Mm -hmm. What considerations should I have? Should I be worrying about photosensitivity? Should I be worrying about their comorbidities or whether another therapy is more appropriate given 
you know, arthritis or other considerations? Right. Yeah. The, let me let me take the arthritis part. You know, you're absolutely correct. Patients with significant psoriatic arthritis, clearly in phototherapy, would treat the skin well, but would not treat the arthritis. So I think that that is a, the situation, that the scenario that you have to consider other forms of therapy that hopefully can cover both of them, right? And there are many of them that we all use that can cover both of them. But the other part that uh, has to be considered is obviously access to phototherapy centers. Number two is that the commitment on the patients in terms of, and in terms of the practical commitment, whether it is something that is doable for them to come to a phototherapy centers two to three times a week. Because you know, initiating phototherapy in the beginning, at least the patient would have to come twice a week if this is office-based phototherapy. Once a week is a waste of time because there is no way for you to increase the dose. And so you should tell patients if you cannot do that, then we have to seriously think about other forms of therapy. So patient's ability to be able to come to the office two to three times a week and patient's ability to be able to be consistently coming because again if you have multiple breaks you know it could be very very difficult having said that you know clearly we all know patients have lives to live if they have to go on vacation absolutely i would let them then no no problem go vacation for a week when we come back we will adjust the dose uh, at that time so there are a lot of advantages on phototherapy clearly there is no that there's no internal medication so patients can feel very comfortable, children can be treated, pregnant women can be treated. So it is on depth part is a beautiful form of therapy that is quite effective and quite safe. So on the point of access that you bring up, mm -hmm. do we have any measurement or do we have a sense of how accessible phototherapy is to most patients? How many dermatology practices either have it in their offices or easily accessible? Good questions. I don't have the number of how many dermatologists in the country has that, but there is a map that uh, Elizabeth uh, Bosney has generated a few years ago on looking at Medicare patients as to where the phototherapy centers these patients have been able to get it from. Primarily, as you expect, East Coast, West Coast, a little bit on the Midwest, but central part of the country, the areas that absolutely has no phototherapy centers whatsoever. So depending on where you live, that is a determining factor. And otherwise, you know, you have to start thinking about home phototherapy even in, in those areas that is not accessible. I want to emphasize also that uh, the tanning booth, for example, that clearly yeah, it is much more accessible than uh, office phototherapy unit. Tanning booth is not a good substitute for uh, narrow band UVB because tanning booth primarily is UVA. UVA alone doesn't work very, very well for psoriasis. We know that. So, you know, if you do need to switch, I would suggest to consider home phototherapy. The practical challenge on that is that to start uh, a patient de novo with office phototherapy is a bit of a commitment on the patient because insurance may or may not cover phototherapy, home phototherapy boots very well to ask them to spend a few thousand dollars to purchase that without knowing whether they would respond well to phototherapy. So generally, the way I use phototherapy is that to start with office first. If I have good indication that the patient is responding well, then I would switch them to home so that they can use that as a maintenance. Clearly, that is uh, the ideal situation to do it. In the event that phototherapy is not very accessible or convenient, and let's say that home phototherapy isn't really an option either. Do you ever ask patients or suggest patients to just get 10 minutes of sun a day or something like that? Or, I mean, I know that's very informal and not addressed in these guidelines. Right. But 
I'm curious. I usually don't. The challenge is that I live in Michigan, just like you live in Philadelphia. We, we don't have that too long a season of the sunny air time, and that's number one. But number two is that the intensity of sunlight, as you know, it changes on from day to day depending on the cloud cover and everything else. So I find it not very practical in asking patients to do that. In addition, there are many other options uh, aside from phototherapy that we can treat patients with psoriasis. So on, on average, we don't do that on, in general. Thanks. Yeah. Maybe a different consideration sure. for different kinds of patients in sunnier climates or even darker skin, mm-hmm. less risk, but just something I want to throw out there. So you're telling me about a lot of different information that I think would be very useful for so many members. Uh, can you explain where that information is available or how do you access it on the website or is it just in the, the JAD publication? It is the JAD publication is the most important one, and clearly JAD is now available electronically, so you can easily, you know, as an AED member, you can elect, yeah, easily download that particular material. There are obviously the AED courses. There are multiple sessions on, on phototherapy. Great. And I saw that you had a level of evidence, I believe, on certain phototherapy mm-hmm. versus others. Can I- you explain which phototherapies are not recommended and why? Visible light, for example, right now there's not enough data to to do that. The evidence is quite weak also for climatotherapy, for example. Even for PDT, you know, there's not very strong evidence that it work. You know, so the best and strongest evidence is still the narrowband UVB and, of course, PUVA. What do you think are the biggest areas in which these guidelines have been improved in this latest round? I think one is that it has been updated, as mentioned before, in terms of narrowband, especially you know, in terms of the current, more contemporary protocol for our, for our members, practicing dermatologists to use. Great. So I want to start to wrap up, sure. but I want to mostly give you an opportunity to tell us what you think the key practice points or the, the take-home messages that you want our listeners and dermatologists to know about phototherapy. Hopefully they'll read all the guidelines, but in case they don't manage to fit it into their busy schedules, sure. what are the most important things? Uh, one is that phototherapy is still a very viable treatment option for psoriasis. As I mentioned before, it can be used for children, it can be used for pregnant women. Uh, the side effects we know very, very well it is a safe form of therapy, uh, especially for darker skin individuals, but even for light skin individuals, there is no significant evidence evidence to show that you know, this is uh, photocarcinogenic, uh, has significant photocarcinogenic potential. So it is still a very practical form of therapy. And I want to emphasize also this is something that, that many of us has used for a long time, I think should continue to be used in dermatology as an one treatment option for our patients with psoriasis. If this, and, and still also economically, this is a very, very if, uh, cost-effective form of treatment as compared to many other treatments that we have in dermatology for psoriasis. I'm not uh, saying that we all should not use photobiologics. Of course, we all do that. You know, there are patients who are more appropriate, the psoriatic arthritis patients, for example. But phototherapy still a very signif- have a significant role specifically for psoriasis in this particular case. Especially when we're trying to avoid immunosuppression Correct. or an immunosuppressed patients that have this mm-hmm. and in a time of COVID, yes. home uh, phototherapy and avoiding immunosuppression have been greater consideration. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Well, I want to really thank you for your time and, and your service, both to the American Academy of Dermatology and Henry Ford and the specialty. I've certainly been enlightened by talking to you and hearing your many lectures over the years. And it's been a real pleasure. So on my behalf, I want to thank Dr. Henry Lim for joining us today in Dialogues. And I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff again. Thank you for joining us today and have a great day.
Thank you very much. This concludes part one of this episode. Stay tuned for part two. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Jules Lipoff, dermatologist in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And today, my esteemed guest is Dr. Christina Callis-Duffin. She is chair of dermatology of the University of Utah, and she is also chair-elect of the medical board of the National Psoriasis Foundation. And that's very apropos because she is going to talk to us today about an on-demand course that you can subscribe to to learn about using phototherapy in your patients for psoriasis. So welcome, Dr. Duffin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm very excited to tell everyone about this course. I think we all want to make sure we select patients well and use phototherapy to the best of our ability. Can you tell me about this course? What is the content about, and why is it essential that members check it out? This course is the follow-on to Henry Lim's course on the AAD guidelines for phototherapy. So this is just to expand on quality and how to deliver in-office phototherapy in the best way possible. And those things are to make sure you're selecting your patients well, that you pick patients that are appropriate for phototherapy, that they can actually get to phototherapy, and how to optimize it. So what makes an appropriate patient for phototherapy? So first of all, the patient, if you're going to treat them with phototherapy, really needs to have their skin disease in the location that is exposable to phototherapy, which is probably really obvious. And so if they have scalp disease or inverse psoriasis, then probably they're not the best candidates for phototherapy. Patients who have photosensitizing conditions on medications like doxycycline, or who burn really easily and really just cannot uh, sustain it, probably aren't the best candidates for phototherapy. But people who are great candidates are those who don't want a systemic agent. For example, people who are pregnant may not want to have a systemic agent, who really want to take advantage of the safety of phototherapy. And it's a very good treatment. Somewhere around 70% of people get meaningful improvement in about three months, which is about the same time as a biologic. Have you found that there is increased interest in this since the pandemic? Interesting question. I would say that in-office phototherapy has had its hiccups related to the pandemic. So there is increased interest in at-home phototherapy. And so we've definitely seen an uptick of that. Well, I guess certainly in office is more difficult with a pandemic, but I also wonder if there's more hesitance to do immunosuppression and that this might be a good option. Absolutely. There's a lot of hesitation about being on a biologic or an immune suppressant. So phototherapy also appeals for that reason. So when you're choosing an appropriate patient, you're mentioning location of the body, whether they find it accessible to get to the office. Are there any other adherence or feasibility concerns? There are some very important considerations for feasibility. Patients have to be able to get to the office or if they choose at-home phototherapy, which really isn't the subject of the course, but you have that option always. Patients who are appropriate for in-office include people who 
really want to have somebody deliver it for them, turn on the machine, help guide them with dose increases. They have to be able and willing to get there. So if they have a job that doesn't allow them to get to the office and or they travel a lot, uh, then it's not as feasible. And you really have to keep doing it to really get the treatment to work. You have to be doing it two to three times a week. And so they have to be able to commit to that time frame. Can you walk me through the stages of how you choose which specific phototherapy option and how you develop a therapeutic plan, the dosing frequency, et cetera, with the patient? Right. So that's where the AAD guidelines are very helpful, that there are guidelines on, you know, what is the best modality for phototherapy, you know, narrowband versus PUVA versus topical versus UVA for a patient's condition. And it's also important to really consider the kind of psoriasis that they have. As I mentioned earlier, if a patient has really thick psoriasis, then narrowband may not be as effective. And we used to use PUVA in patients with really thick plaque psoriasis because it was more effective because it penetrates more deeply. Narrowband, though, is safer. It is quite effective for most types of psoriasis and it doesn't have this cumulative dose issue with PUVA with increased risk of squamous cell. So with with narrowband, you're trading some efficacy for less risk, and that seems reasonable for most cases, right? Also, that PUVA is really hard to deliver anymore because Sorlin became very expensive. There's a lot of things you have to consider over the course of using when you use Sorlin, you have to have patients protect their eyes and their skin for a couple of days after the treatment. And the guidelines cover that information quite well. Yeah, definitely separately from your course, highly recommend that we all check out those guidelines published in the JAD. So when it comes to, let's say you've picked your patient, you're going to start them on phototherapy. Tell me about the strategies you might recommend to educate, monitor, troubleshoot it, such as, I imagine, setting expectations or choosing the number of treatments, et cetera. So first of all, I mentioned using the guidelines to determine a starting dose based on usually skin type, but sometimes MED, and also frequency, things like that. Those are written in the guidelines as a starting point. But the next most important thing is what the focus of the course is, which is how to deliver it with quality in your office which means that you really have to you know, get the person into the office, make sure they're doing it, make sure you're monitoring them for burns or itching, and make sure they're coming back. It's not so uncommon that patients will show up 12 weeks later for their follow-up visit, and they'll say, well, this didn't really work for me. And there's a segment in the unit where we talk about how can you get to the answers to why they're not improving, which we call the five whys, which kind of seems a little bit, maybe it seems a little elementary, but it's a strategy for asking yourself, why is the patient not improving? So the patient may not be showing up. Frequently, they will not show up because there's some barrier, they got a new job, or they can't get away from their home, they have childcare duties. But sometimes it's because they're already abandoned it because they're not improving. They want to see improvement right away. So asking yourself and asking the patient, 
are there reasons why you haven't been coming? Sometimes it's because they're having a side effect, like they're burning, or they think they're burning. And we focused on that in the course, that patients sometimes don't realize that you're supposed to get a little pink in the first few hours, the first 24 hours, and they'll think they're getting a burn. And if the nurses aren't trained well, they'll say, oh, the patient's got a burn, so we're not gonna increase the dose. And then they will not achieve clearance. So that's what we cover is, you know, how do you practically ask those questions to see what is the reason for their lack of improvement? So would you be be willing to delineate what those five whys are precisely, (laughs) or is that too, too much? There isn't actually a set of those five whys. It's really asking the why in series. So in the course, we talk about a patient who has said that they're not improving. And the first question is why? Now that's a rhetorical why. You don't you know, tell the patient, hey, why aren't you improving? You wanna do it in a kind way. And so it's really a question to yourself. Why is the patient not improving? And you look at their in-office record of their treatments and you realize because they abandoned the treatment. So the next question, number two is, why did you stop? Why did you stop at three weeks? And ask that question, well, because I wasn't getting better. And so you still have the same answer to the first two whys. I stopped, I stopped at three weeks because I wasn't getting better. And then you have to ask another reason, well, why wouldn't they be getting better? So that's number three. What are the reasons for that? Was it because they're having side effects? Is it because we're not going up on the dose fast enough? And so that's the next set of whys. Well, why isn't the dose being increased? Well, it turns out that the nurse wasn't increasing the dose because the patient was saying, because I'm getting a burn. So both were not educated on what is an important amount of pinkness. And so the education has to be both with the patient and the staff to communicate those issues. And then the last question of why is, why didn't I know about this sooner? And that's a communication piece within the clinic to really empower your staff to tell you when patients abandon or when there's some question about are they having a burn. I really like that framework. One specific reason is because the why seems not judgmental. It seems just open-ended and not blaming the patient necessarily. I don't know if you've seen the show Ted Lasso on Apple TV, but one thing I've been quoting a lot and thinking about in respect to my practice is this thing he says, be curious, not judgmental. And your why framework is all about curiosity. What is going wrong? I'm not blaming the team for not understanding. I'm not blaming the patient for not understanding, but I wanna understand so we can formulate a plan. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, and I have a sticker on my coffee mug that has that exact same quote. I'm a Fed Lasso fan as well. All right, well, I guess uh, we're on the same page here. So what do you think, aside from pinkness being misinterpreted as burns, what are other common reasons for patients ending treatment early or not being able to be compliant with it? Some patients end treatment earlier than they're supposed to because they have other side effects. So besides burning, they can sometimes have itching. Sometimes they're not improving more quickly enough. So sometimes they're not improving quickly enough and 
occasionally they get worse, and that can happen occasionally. So I think whenever you're asking those questions, why are there problems? Why is the patient abandoning treatment? You have to consider a whole set of possibilities from not doing the visits at all, not doing them or frequently, or frequently enough, really, to get narrowband to work. You really need to do it about every 48, 72 hours, making sure the doses are being increased. One common thing that we do in our office is have people stand on a stool if they have lower extremity lesions so they can get more light appropriately on their feet and their lower legs, which tends to be a bit more stubborn for parts of the body that are not responding but aren't burning, sometimes you can add what we call a boost. So whenever I see a patient back in the clinic, those are several of the questions that I'm asking, like, okay, what is going sideways with this treatment? And so dose, dose frequency, side effects, optimizing, all those kinds of things go through my mind as I'm treating them. Are there any specific adjustments or ways that you tailor therapies to different patients that people should know about? Yeah, tailoring therapy for the skin type is part of the guideline. So if a patient has a really dark skin type, you're going to need to start, obviously, at a higher dose and do larger increases. Being too conservative, not going up on the dose quickly enough, is a reason why people will abandon. I think patients are worried about burning and physicians are probably more worried about burning. And you're gonna learn a fair amount in the first few weeks of doing this. Some patients will say, well, when I do it, I get a burn in certain areas that don't see the sun too much. And they don't have, if they don't have psoriasis lesions in those areas, you can cover it with sunscreen. I frequently tailor with a boost if there's an area that's being particularly stubborn, like on, on the lower legs, as I mentioned before. And occasionally we add systemic therapies to synergize. Sometimes if you add methotrexate or acetretin, you can see a considerable improvement, especially if they have thick lesions. And that requires some attention to adjusting the dose as well so they don't get a burn. So there's all kinds of different ways you can optimize by asking what they're experiencing. Are they improving fast enough? Are certain areas not improving fast enough? Are there any strategies or medications that you've seen physicians add that you would recommend against? The dogma and the data would support that adding cyclosporin to phototherapy is not a good idea. And that really comes out of the PUVA literature, that adding cyclosporin to PUVA really augmented the risk of squamous cell carcinoma. Acetretin and methotrexate both can make the skin more sensitive to UV. If you start both therapies at the same time, then starting at a low dose is probably with the light is not likely to burn. But if you add methotrexate or acetretin in after a patient has gotten up to a higher dose, you can definitely cause a burn. So in the first week or two after you add that dose, most guidelines would recommend reducing the UV dose by 30%. Do you ever use any therapies in combination with phototherapy to get an initial 
faster response, like traditionally like cyclosporin can get a response, but maybe you don't want to do that with phototherapy. So what do you generally do to accelerate uh, response? One very simple thing to help with response is just putting a moisturizer on right before you go in the light. So we have patients put a moisturizer on. It doesn't really matter which one it is. Some people use mineral oil or other just common emollients right before they go in the light. Other patients like to continue to use topical agents such as topical steroids, vitamin D agents, and there are data that support using vitamin D agents in combination as well as vitamin A agents like tazeratine in combination. The caveat there is to not apply them right before the patient gets exposed to the light because there's some data suggesting it would deactivate the topical that you're using. There are also some older studies saying that you shouldn't use strong topical corticosteroids with phototherapy because it may reduce the remission time. I don't know if that's clinically relevant, and there are other data saying that combinations of topical steroids and narrow band like eczema laser extract actually synergizes and works well together. So that may be some dogma that isn't really based in good data. It's interesting with, with the topicals in combination, these seem like modifications of Geckerman regimens, although I guess not a lot of people still do that, probably. Yeah, there are a few centers doing Geckerman anymore. <laughs> uh, all right, so what do you think are important factors to sustain patient satisfaction when doing patient uh, doing phototherapy with psoriasis? My opinion is that patient satisfaction is linked to improvement, and so I think our most important job is personalizing our therapy, doing shared decision-making to make sure that your values and their values, your goals and their values are the same. So if a patient wants to focus on getting using phototherapy because they feel it's the safest modality, then phototherapy is a great choice for them. But if they want to be better in two weeks, probably not the right choice for them. So I think first step is really talking about what the options are and making sure that is what they want to do and then understanding the pragmatic aspects of it next. So that's the first thing. In terms of patient satisfaction with the phototherapy delivery, getting them in and out the door as quickly as you can, not giving them a burn, helping them understand all of the things that we just talked about are important I always like to focus on making sure I'm measuring what they're doing. So I have built into my practice Body Surface Area and Physician Global to make sure that they are actually improving. And I think that's another part of this module is thinking about other pieces of quality improvement that you can do in your practice. So if you aren't doing body surface areas or physician global assessments, or if you really wanted to, POSI, the AAD has modules to train you on that. And those are quality improvement, MIPS measures, right? Things that people can do to improve the quality of their practice. And those are, I think, relevant. There are also patient satisfaction tools and various itch tools, things like that, to really allow the patient voice to come through as well. So when you were talking about how to make them satisfied based on the choice of therapy and shared goals, I wasn't thinking quite about Ted Lasso again, but there is something called, have you heard of this, the the platinum rule? So the golden rule, you know, is do unto others as 
you would have done unto yourself. But the platinum rule is this other idea that do unto others as they would have done unto them. That we shouldn't necessarily assume that what other people want is what you what you would want is what they would want. So I try to keep that in mind so that you're not too aggressive and also sufficiently aggressive. So I want to start wrapping this thing up. So I want to ask if there are any other salient points that we haven't covered that we should highlight so people know to seek out your on-demand course. Sure. The course is intended to be thought-provoking on what things you can do to improve quality of phototherapy in your office. I'm hoping that in the future we can deliver another dialogue, another course in home phototherapy because I think that is an important aspect of it. So just look for that and I hope that the course is helpful. Yeah, especially since the pandemic, I'm sure there's a big increase in in in-home phototherapy. Well, I guess the final question is, where can dermatologists find these resources? They're on the AAD website, correct? That is correct. They are on the AAD website. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Duffin. It's been a pleasure. I'm sure everyone is really enthused to try to learn more about the way to deliver phototherapy best. I've certainly learned a lot just in this conversation, and I want to learn more. My name again is Dr. Jules Lipoff, and thank you for joining us today on Dialogues in Dermatology. Have a great one. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.